Well, good morning, Orchard Hills. Thank you guys for being with us to worship this morning. Welcome to everyone at home and outside as well. Uh, my name is Sutton Wirt. I, I serve as the administrator here, and it's an honor to get to be with you all this morning and to get the privilege of opening the Word of God together. Well, hey, um, who likes to watch the Olympics? Awesome. Awesome. I love watching the Olympics. Um, the, the thrill of the best athletes in the world all on the same international stage is so exciting. Um, you've got people not just competing for uh, some arbitrary team, but competing, representing their whole country. You've got the whole world watching records being broken, and I think it's very, very exciting. Well, our modern Olympics, um, which started just back in the 1800s, were actually patterned after the ancient Olympics, um, which went from like the 700s BC to the 300s AD, over a thousand years. Um, And so that was very much during the time of of a lot of what takes place in the Bible. Um, And so all over the New Testament, the writers of, of the Bible are picking up on this and using uh, Olympic imagery, specifically um, the imagery of running, um, the first and most respected of the Olympic Games. And so today we're going to look at a passage um, where Paul uses this, this image of running a race as a metaphor for life. Um, and it's in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Um, it's on page 1134 of your church Bibles if you want to turn to it there. Um, but like I said, not only Paul, all of the New Testament writers, many of them use this imagery of um, the life of faith as a race, something that has a beginning and an end, something that's challenging but worth it, um, and something that requires our attention, sacrifice, focus, and devotion. And so here's where we're going today. Here's what the, the question that I believe this passage is answering. Um, and that is this. If following Jesus is like a race, then how can we run to win? How can we be people um, who, who don't give up somewhere in the middle, who don't fall off and quit, but who are faithful all the way to the end um, and persevere and finish the race? How can we, like Paul, get to the end of our lives and say, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith? And the answer that this passage puts before us uh, in a sentence is this. The prize that Jesus offers is worth whatever you must give up to obtain it. So that's where we're going today. Let me put this in a little context for you. This letter um, of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a church that he planted on his second missionary journey. Um, This letter comes a few years later while he's living in Ephesus for a while, um, and he writes this letter back to the Corinthians. He's heard that they're having some issues, um, that they're needing some correction and some encouragement, and so as their father in the faith, he's writing back to them to encourage them to keep on, to, to finish the race that they started. In this particular section of the letter, we find Paul addressing an issue in which some of the people in the church are selfishly wanting to do things um, that make other people in the church feel uncomfortable or feel offended. And Paul responds by saying that as Christ followers, we should be willing to give up anything necessary so that 
another person may hear the gospel. That we should be willing to give up anything we need to, to not hinder another person's faith. And they're finishing the race. Paul says that he does this all the time. He says, I've, I've got a right to take a wife, but I, I don't. He says, I've got a right to be paid for this ministry, but I refuse. And then in verse 23, he says that he does it all for the sake of the gospel. And then we come to our passage today. Um, again, this is 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9, starting in verse 24. It says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, you are the King. Um, And man, it's been so sweet to worship you this morning, to lift up your name. Lord, thank you for making a way for us, um, for calling us to follow after you and promising that there's, there's an end in sight, there's a future, there's a reward. And so, Lord, we just need you to, to open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds this morning. Holy Spirit, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? And Lord Jesus, would you be that perfect blend of grace and truth, pointing out uh, the things in our life that need to go and graciously saying, I love you, I've got you, I'm here to help every step of the way. Lord, we trust you, and we give you this time, and we pray this for, for your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're a, uh, a note-taking person, I've got three, three points here today. First one, eyes on the prize. <clears throat> Paul begins with a question, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And that's a rhetorical question, because of course they know that. Um, like I said, everyone in, in this culture at the time, the world was very Hellenized. Greek culture had, had overtaken it. So everyone knew about the games. And in particular, right here in Corinth was the site of the biennial Isthmian games. They came every year before the Olympics and every year after it, um, because the Olympics were every four years like they are today. And so the Corinthians would have been more than familiar with this running metaphor. They certainly would have known what Paul meant. And so what is Paul saying? Is he saying that in the Christian life, only one person wins? Praise God, he's not saying that. (laughs) That's not how it works. Um, And we know that because he has already said earlier in this letter, don't have divisions among you, don't have competitions, don't try to to get the better of one another. Um, That's not what the Christian life is about. And so what is he saying? I believe it's this, that as Christians, as people who follow Christ, we must follow Jesus with the same single-minded determination of a runner who knows that only one person gets the prize. That same attitude, that same single-minded determination. And so church, in order for us to follow Jesus, in order for us to finish this race, then this must be everything to us. It must be the goal of our existence. And if you're living for anything else, then you're missing it. You're missing the goal of your life. And this is so valuable. This is so 
worthy, that it's worth giving up everything else for. And so in order for us to to run this race to the end, we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. And so what is this prize or this wreath that that Paul is talking about? Well, it's, it's actually another reference to the games. When the races were over, the victor would receive a crown or a wreath, much like we give out medals today. Um, and it's the same Greek word, crown or wreath. We, it's just one Greek word. And it's referring to something that would have looked like this. There you go. Quite the reward. <laughs> but what, what then is our wreath that, that Paul's talking about? What is this prize that we should be focused on? Well, based on how these words are used across the New Testament, Paul means at least three things. Uh, but they're all one, one glorious bundle. So first, in other letters, like Philippians and 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses this word, wreath or crown, to refer to the people who meet Jesus because of us. He says to the Thessalonians uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Is it not you? Man, part of our, our glad reward on that day when, when the Lord Jesus returns will be that there will be people around us saying, hey, I, I met Jesus because Mike told me about him. I follow the Lord today because, because Rick shared the gospel with me. I'm here because, because Neil talked to me about what the Lord had done in his life. That's a pretty sweet reward. But that's not all. Second, Paul says that we run for an imperishable wreath. The next time he uses that word imperishable in this letter, it's at the end when he's talking about our resurrection bodies. And this is something that we don't talk about a whole lot, but did you know that one day you, if you are in Christ, you will be raised and given a new resurrection body, a body that won't wear out or fade or decay or be weak because of the the sin that has made it that way, but a body that's gloriously new and restored. Man, isn't that what our world is longing for? Isn't that the answer to our world's obsession with youth? And all the while, it's exactly what the Lord is offering us. A new body that will be just like Jesus's resurrected body that can eat and drink and touch and feel and embrace. That too is a part of the crown that we will receive. And then third and finally, James and John use this word crown or wreath to describe eternal life. And you know what John says eternal life is, the essence of it? It's knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, that's a reward. What, what a hope that we get the one that our souls were made for, that we receive God himself, that we get to experience for the rest of eternity, the one who is the, the very definition of beauty and power and might and glory and, and majesty. We were made for him and, and he has given himself to us in the gospel. That's good news. And so this is the prize that we're to be focused on. This is the the wreath that will be granted if we endure to the end eternal life with God and his people in a renewed body forever. What could be better than that? 
And so Paul says, run, that you may obtain it. Keep your eyes fixed on this. Focus on this goal. Run all the way to the end, daily keeping your eyes on this prize. Let your heart swell with hope that this is what you have coming to you. Praise God. Point number two. Practice, practice, practice. Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, something that's just going to fade away or tarnish. But we, an imperishable. So, I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. This isn't practice. I'm in the game. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I did some, uh, some research this week about the training habits of Olympic athletes. Um, every bit of their uh, life leading up to the competition is structured around uh, the, the competition that they're going to be in. They have rigorous, multiple times a day training schedules. They get a minimum of eight hours of sleep a night, and many of them take naps. Um, they have strict and scheduled food consumption Strict water consumption, they cut out junk food, alcohol, any kind of fast food. Truly, you could say they exercise self-control in all things. They are not running aimlessly. They know what's at stake and they know what they want. They've got their eyes on the prize and they're running for it. But y'all, here's the thing. I, I can't help but think how little that describes my own life and the lives of many Christians that I know. Um, And for many of us, I'm afraid that following Jesus is nothing more than a nice family tradition, um, or maybe a sentence on our Instagram bio, uh, or some kind of cheesy cultural identity, or even like a spiritual wellness program uh, where we just kind of check in every once in a while to make sure we're doing okay. But these verses are begging us to understand that this is everything. This is eternity. This is real life. And if athletes are willing to sacrifice and schedule their whole lives around getting some prize and having some medal that will sit on some shelf and fade away, then how much more should we be willing to to give our lives and build our lives around Christ and his kingdom that will last forever? How much more should we be gladly willing to give up everything in our pursuit of Jesus and following after him? As Paul writes to Timothy, um, his, his son in the faith, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he says, Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, and also for the life to come. So what then, what then are the ways in which we should discipline ourselves spiritually? How, how do we train for godliness? Well, um, unfortunately, it's not anything we don't know already. Um, it's really just a bunch of ordinary things that God has ordained and asked us to do um, that require consistency. It's daily worship of Him 
through prayer and scripture. It's meditating on and memorizing the word. It's regular fellowship with God's people. It's generous giving and joyful fasting and leading your family and discipling the people in your life and, and, and coming to church and, and worshiping God with his people. All of these are the very ordinary means that God has established to make you more like him, to train you in godliness. All of these are God's means of applying the gospel to our hearts. Um, and the world says that the gospel and that God's way of working it into our lives is foolishness. Um, but for us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. And so our training is not like the world's training. It's not, it's not a work that we have to do by mustering up strength within ourselves and, and just trying harder. It's really much more of a surrender and saying, okay, Lord, uh, if this is a race, then you're the coach and you're in charge and it's not me. And if you're saying that these are the things that are going to train me in godliness, then I want to submit to them. I want to follow you. I want to live your way and not my way. And I'm going to read and pray and give and serve knowing that as I do, it's going to make me more like Jesus. Even though those seem like such simple, ordinary things. I trust you and I'm going to obey and so if you're going to, to be trained in godliness, if you're going to finish this race, um, then your life has got to look different from the lives of the world around us. Um, you're, you're going to have to schedule your life in a different way. You're going to have a different center around which your life is orbiting. And so the way that you spend your time is going to look different. The way that you spend your money is going to look different. Uh, the things that you care about are going to look different. The things that you value are, are going to be a different set of values from the world who put self at the center. Because instead, we're putting God at the center. But the crazy thing is, the more that we do this, and the more that we follow Jesus and, and live his way, the more that the goals of the world and the stuff that everyone's living for just becomes just kind of pointless. We see right through it the waste of time that much of it is. And the more, that we, the more that we train for godliness, the more and more Jesus becomes so beautiful to us. And we want nothing more than him. So point number three, keep it out of the ditches. <laughs> My grandpa used to say that to me um, when we'd leave to go home. He'd say, keep it out of the ditches. Thanks, Rams. Appreciate it. <laughs> Paul says it this way. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, this seems a little bit strange. Paul, disqualified. Um, the Greek word for disqualified here means failing to pass the test, unapproved, or counterfeit. And every other place that the New Testament uses it, it's used to talk about people whose faith proves insincere and who are not truly saved. But this is Paul we're talking about. Uh, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul. Surely he had some assurance of salvation. Surely he had confidence that he was going to finish the race. And I would say yes, yes, absolutely. I believe that he did. So please, don't hear anything that I say today 
um, to mean that we can earn our salvation. That is not what I'm saying at all. Um, the, the Bible is clear. Paul is clear that our salvation is a gift of God. It's, it's by grace through faith. It's not a work that we do, not something that we can earn. It's something that only God can do in us. But over and over again, the New Testament reminds us that an evidence of this true salvation that God has worked in our hearts is that we persevere, is that we finish the race and run it to the end. And what Scripture reveals, and what I imagine your own experience reveals, is that there are many people who fall away. There are many people who who don't keep running. And it's not that their salvation was not secure. Um, It's just that it wasn't really there to begin with. And so it's like Jesus said in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He says, But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So can we have assurance of our salvation? Can we have confidence about what God is doing in us? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You didn't do anything to earn God's love, and so you can't do anything to lose it. But John Piper puts it this way, and I think that this is, this is a helpful sentence. He says, The Bible does not offer an assurance that makes pursuit non-essential. The Bible does not offer an assurance that makes pursuit non-essential. You aren't saved to sit back and just keep living for yourself the rest of your life. You're not saved to just keep living the way the rest of the world is living. And if, and if that's you, then it's, um, it's just a sign that you haven't really experienced this great salvation that God has offered us. And so immediately after this passage that we're in, Paul talks about what disqualified many people in ancient Israel, what was disqualifying people in that church at Corinth, and what uh, disqualifies many today, and that is idolatry. Um, So for us, idolatry seems like something back in the day people did back then. Nobody's doing that now. Um, But idolatry is not merely worshiping some carved image of stone or wood. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. It's delighting in any created thing more than we're delighting in the one who created it. And so an idol isn't necessarily some sinful thing. An idol can, can be any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. Something that you must have in order to be happy. Something that you have to do to be okay. And so Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 10 about idolatry. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. We're all tempted the same way. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You never have to sin. There's always a way out. There's always a way to keep running and to make it through. There's always a way to keep your eye on the prize. So run from idolatry. Run to the Lord and run away from idolatry. So what is it for you? Perhaps it's some blatant sin, something that you know is wrong, something that you are just trying to keep covered up and think isn't going to hurt anybody, some kind of pet sin that you think is only yours. 
It kind of reminds me of uh, Stranger Things. I don't know if anybody's seen that. Um, in it, there's uh, this kid named Dustin, and he finds this little little pet alien. And it's called a polywog. And um, uh, he, his friends are like, no, don't keep it. That's bad news. And he's like, no, it's okay. It's fine. And then he pretends to get rid of it, brings it home to his house, puts it in this little fish tank. And uh, it's pretty cute at first, but then it grows teeth. Um, and then it eats his cat. Um, so then he's like, okay, this probably was a bad idea. And then it keeps growing and growing until it's big enough to eat people. And so our sin is much like that. We keep these things protected and we think no one's going to know. No one's going to, to find me out. But all the while, it's growing. And friends, let me tell you, our sin damages not just us, but the people that we know. There is no such thing as a private sin. Sin always affects the community. And so let me say this. If there's a sin that you're hanging on to and that you don't want to give to the Lord, that sin will kill you. If you are are not repenting and bringing your sin to Jesus, then it will kill you now and it will kill you forever. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, according to your sinful nature, then you will die. But if by the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, not our power, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Be killing sin and your life, or sin will be killing you. Don't let it disqualify you, but run to Jesus. Run away from idolatry. Run from anything that tempts you away from him. There is always a way of escape. And so perhaps for you, um, instead it might be something more subtle, something that, that maybe isn't a blatant sin. Um, like I said before, idols can often be good things that we turn into ultimate things. And so idols in our life can, can really be anything. They could be a job or our kids, um, a spouse, food, drink, travel, vacations, um, houses, cars, vacation houses, money, any kind of, of material thing, anything at all that becomes greater in our heart than God. I'm not saying any of those things are bad things, but when they become something that we long for, something that we hope in and rest in more than the one that our souls were made for, that's idolatry. And Jesus says it doesn't work out well because you can't serve two masters. You're either going to be devoted to one and despise the other. And so if you're devoted to something else than Jesus, then you're going to start getting frustrated with the demands that Jesus puts on your life. And you're going to give up following him. You can't serve two masters. So what are the idols of your heart? Only you can answer that. Well, let's finish uh, where we started. The prize that Jesus offers is worth, gloriously worth, whatever you must give up to obtain it. Whatever you might sacrifice in the pursuit of this prize is worth it, and it's worth it because he is worth it. He is worthy. And church, I feel like I have only tasted a fraction of God's goodness. I feel like I've only glimpsed a fraction of his presence and his heart for me, but I can tell you that he's good and that he's worth it. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are all those who take refuge in him. He's good and following him is so, so worth it. And just like an athlete gladly gives up anything to get the prize, 
I can promise you that this prize, this life with God and his people forever is so worth whatever you might have to give up in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Let's, uh, let's land on this scripture here. This is uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. Um, another passage with a, a running metaphor. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely. Kill it. Get rid of it. Topple your idols. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to the prize, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Man, isn't that exciting? Isn't that energizing to your faith? We aren't alone. His spirit is in us. There's this cloud of witnesses, the saints who have gone before us, who are cheering us on saying, run, run all the way to the end. It's worth it. And not only that, but our Savior has gone before us. He showed us how it's done. He, he never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He ran the race. He endured suffering. He, he finished the race with his eyes on the prize. And here's the thing. Do you know what the prize was? Do you know what that joy set before him was? Ephesians 1 says that we, our God's inheritance, that his prize was you and me. The only thing that Jesus had after the cross that he didn't have before was his bride, the church, you and me. He did it for us. And on the way, he had to wear a crown or a wreath that he did not deserve. In fact, he wore a crown of thorns so that you could wear this imperishable crown of glory. Hallelujah. That's good news. And so what, what is it for you today? <clears throat> Perhaps you need to get serious about training for godliness. Maybe you've come to Christ, but there's just not a lot of, of seriousness in your walk and... Um, yeah, maybe you need to take, take the coach seriously on his training schedule and the things that he asks us to do. Maybe you've got uh, some secret sin that you think isn't going to hurt you or anyone else, but it will, so kill it. By the power of the Spirit, kill it. Get rid of it and ask for help. We've got each other for a reason. One of the most effective uh, ways of killing sin that I've seen is, is accountability is being vulnerable and letting other people into your life and saying, hey, I'm wrestling with this. Would you help me? Would you ask me about this? Would you pray for me? The Lord always will provide a way out and he gives us his people for help and for accountability. And maybe for you, um, like me, there's, there's some idols in your heart that need to be toppled over. Um, John Calvin was famous for saying that uh, the, the human heart is a ceaseless idol factory. And so we constantly have to be examining ourselves and saying, man, this is getting in the way of me following Jesus. I've got to be done with this. I've got to let this go. I've got to surrender this to the Lord. So church, the prize is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Let's run. 
Let's run all the way to the end and let's do it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we want to love you more. You've said that uh, life is found in loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that is right where we want to be. Lord, if there's any idols in our hearts right now that we need to topple over, reveal them to us, convict them of us. Lord, thank you that you never, um, you never point out things in our hearts with any kind of frustration or anger, but you are gentle. And you say, here, don't. Let me, let me take that from you. It's not helping you, it's hurting you. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gentle, loving way in which you rebuke us. Father, you've said that, that you only discipline the people that you love. You only discipline the people who are your true sons and daughters. And so I pray that we wouldn't, wouldn't uh, scoff at that, that we wouldn't shirk that, but that we would submit and just, um, yeah, just love the freedom that comes from releasing the things that you ask us to release. So Lord, we trust you. Um, we continue to give you ourselves and we thank you um, for this time. Jesus, thank you for making it all possible through, it, for, um, through what you have done. Lord, we love you, and we look forward to the end of this race where we will feast with you, with your people, on a new heaven and new earth. I can't wait for that day. We love you, Lord. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.